Uh, this is the last Sunday of 2018. It's crazy. I don't know how that happens. Um, but with that, um, we're coming up on 2019, and we all know what that means, right? The tradition of a New Year's resolution. Um, how many of you guys commit to a New Year's resolution? Anyone? No, there was a few last service. Um, <laughs> well, so I looked up some of uh, the top 10 New Year's resolutions, and as you might guess, right? Exercise more, lose some weight, um, learn a new skill or hobby. Um, a couple of the other ones had like earn more money way up there at the top too. Uh, but what was interesting when I was looking at this is um, over 80% of the people make resolutions, but only 10% of them make it through February. The funny thing is I think we all know this about our New Year's resolutions. So when we hear somebody sharing their New Year's resolutions, we secretly say to ourselves, they'll never make it. Um, I was reading a book uh, by E. Stanley Jones uh, called Christian Maturity. And in this, he describes the difference between religion and a relationship with Jesus. He explains that religion is like a giant ladder that people are climbing rung by rung to get to God. And if they try hard enough, if they pray hard enough, if they study hard enough and sacrifice enough, they can get to the top where God will accept them. But in contrast, through Jesus, God comes down to the bottom rung where man is and provides, provides the way of salvation. I think our problem as mankind is that we easily fall into the works-based climbing the ladder approach to God. Uh, in Galatians uh, 3, 1 through 3, we read, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes? Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out about you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected in the flesh? When we're struggling with our faith and our walk, I think we make God all kinds of promises. I'll read the Bible more. I'll I'll pray more. I'll, I'll spend more time doing this or that. You see, we begin climbing the ladder so God will do what we're asking or see us as worthy of giving us what we're looking for. The sad thing is that we have the same results as our New Year's resolutions and oftentimes the same expectations of ourselves that we won't complete it. We know that we're not going to keep these promises we make to God either. Why is it so easy to fall into the works-based approach of the flesh? The easy answer is because it's physical. We live in a four-dimensional world with space and time, and, and we're familiar with that, so we default to what we know. We know that reading our Bible and prayer and giving to the poor and all of the other outcomes of a relationship with Jesus are works. So when we need to feel God, we turn to these things. So is this a bad thing? The answer is yes or no. Um, it all depends on where these actions are coming from. If we're motivated by an outpouring of love from our interaction with Jesus, then these things are good. 
If we're doing them to accomplish something for ourselves or to bargain with God, then they're of no benefit. In Galatians 3, Paul is not complimenting the believers there. He's rebuking them. This is all about our relationship with Jesus. Unfortunately, we think that doing these things is our relationship with Jesus. And so many of us get caught up in the works of the relationship. And we lose the relationship. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus sends a letter to the church at Ephesus. And he says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. And that you cannot tolerate evil. You cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Here the work is being done, and it is great work. But much like what was said to the Galatians, this is not being done in the Spirit. The relationship with God gets neglected. We see this in all of our relationships, in friendships, in marriages, in family. We are doing the things that we've always done, but the activities replace the relationship, and before you realize it, the relationship isn't there. The friends, marriages, families fall apart because the relationship was neglected. Um, here's a quote from John Piper that speaks to this issue. The critical question for our generation and every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauty you ever saw, and all the physical pleasure you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ wasn't there? My guess is that many people who claim to be Christians or followers of Jesus would be okay with this version of heaven. The relationship has become about the work and what they're doing, and so heaven is a reward for them for their work. So I ask you, what are we here for? Have we come to earn God's favor? Is this your religion? Your set of routines and works to earn your place in God's favor so that you can get into the heaven of your pleasures? Or are you here because of the vibrant relationship you have with Jesus drives you to serve his people and the world? Today we're going to turn... Return to First Peter chapter 2. Uh, we've been away for a couple weeks, so I want to read through um, the first 12 verses that we've covered to set the stage for today. First uh, Peter chapter 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord... And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, 
the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of God, of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God, and you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. These are the passages that we've been spending time in, and rather than going on to new verses, I'd like to go deeper into these. Our focus today is going to be on evangelism, really a continuation of what Tim shared in his last message when evangelism doesn't look like evangelism. Today we'll focus specifically on proclaiming the excellencies of God. But if you notice in the passage, the proclaiming of God comes after who he has declared us to be, which is a royal priesthood. I think one of the reasons we struggle so much with evangelism is because we don't understand our position and calling as priests. A major problem in the church today is that most people are relatively unfamiliar with the Old Testament. Jesus says he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. We as his followers should know what it is he's fulfilling. In verse 9, we were called a royal priesthood. And there are several references to Jesus as the high priest. If we're priests, then we should be doing our priestly duties, right? What are our priestly duties? What is the royal priesthood? Well, let's look at how it started. In Exodus 13:2, we read, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. God's original plan was to have the firstborn in every family as his priest to represent God to the family and to the world around. When Esau rejects his firstborn position and birthright, he's rejecting God and God's call in his life. Later, God says in Romans, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is actually a quote from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And in the context of that, God is explaining the condition of the people of Israel, and he's explaining the condition of the people of Esau, and that their condition is a result of the rejection of God by Esau himself. So it's not that God created Esau to hate him, but here we see that the firstborn was the priest. In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, we see God expand the priesthood. He says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, com- my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here God establishes the entire nation of Israel, all 12 tribes, as the priesthood. But that only lasts a few weeks as they build an idol and worship it. And God calls them to keep their promise as priests and eliminate sin from the camp. 
which, by the way, is the current role of the priesthood that we should be fulfilling, the elimination of sin in the camp of God. But notice here that God's first call in the priesthood is to draw their swords and to fight. It's a soldier's call to eliminate sin. Knowing this, it gives a whole new understanding of Paul's references to soldiers putting on the armor of God and the role of the word of God as the sword that defeats sin. And then later in Psalms 106, he says, Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. So finally here we see that the priesthood call that God gave us was so that God could make his power known. If you want to do an interesting word study, look up the phrase, his namesake. God is doing all of these things for his glory, for his namesake. And that is our purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of God so people can see God work in our lives for his glory. So the nation of Israel was to be uh, that nation of priests as well. But it was reduced to the tribe of Levi because of their disobedience. Only the Levites responded to the call of the priesthood. Uh, in Matthew 21, we see the rejection of Jesus by the priests and the, te- and the temporary transfer of the priesthood to the church. So uh, Matthew 21, um, Jesus gives some parables. And he identifies to the Jewish leadership that they have rejected God and the priesthood, and it's being temporarily removed from them to provoke them to come to Jesus. So he gives a few parables. I'm going to read one of them uh, to you. This is from Matthew 21, uh, starting in verse 33. It says, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his, uh, his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? So Jesus poses the question. And the leaders say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent out the vineyard to another vine grower who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. So when Jesus presents this situation to the leadership, they immediately see that that's a problem. You need to do something with that. Uh, this reminds me of the time that um, David is uh, in sin and he, uh, he killed a man and Nathan comes up to him and he gives him the story about this man with lots of sheep and he kills the neighbor's uh, sheep that only has one and David gets so upset. He says, this man must die. And Nathan says, it's you, David. And David feels the weight of his sin and he repents. But here, the leaders are given a situation and their response is, indignation for this um, for this landowner how could they do this and jesus says to them did you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected this became the chief cornerstone 
This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So their response to the revelation that Jesus is giving them, that the priest is going to be removed, instead of repentance, they were angry and wanted to kill him. So this priesthood has now been given to the church. We've been set aside as a public display for God. This is one of the things Jesus was referencing when he said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And they'll see your good works and they'll glorify God. Uh, In Romans uh, chapters 9 through 11, Paul explains in detail this passing of the priesthood from Israel to those that are being grafted in. And what we find is the priesthood is, it's a physical representation of the work of God reconciling man to himself. He reaches down to man. He uses reprobate man. He redeems him and restores him to demonstrate his love and power. So as Paul is explaining this, he breaks out in a moment of praise and worship as he sees the work that God has done on our behalf. And he's thanking God and giving him praises. And then it's interesting how Paul responds next. How should the child of God respond to the work and the glory of God? Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. We're to be the sacrifice and present the sacrifice. It says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We are a kingdom of priests. The role of the priest is to present the sacrifice before God. So are we still required to present sacrifices? Romans 12 certainly says that God is requiring sacrifices from us. When you're reading through the Bible, and hopefully uh, you start with this year, um, most people struggle when they get to the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and these passages, they get bogged down and, and they struggle with that. But I think the biggest reason is because they don't understand our call as a priest. So hopefully what we go through today is, is going to bring new life uh, to the book of Leviticus as it's all about the requirements of the priesthood. So here's how these uh, sacrifices still apply to us today. Uh, The first sacrifice we're introduced to in Leviticus is uh, the peace offering or the peace sacrifice. This is a voluntary sacrifice, a voluntary offering to the Lord for a relationship. Essentially, um, the people bring the sacrifice. Um, God has given his portion and the rest is put on the altar Um, and prepared and cooked. And then the family who brought it, they sit and they just eat. It's like this picnic with God. 
It's all about having relationship with God. Um, it's a time of just sharing and giving thanks for what God's done. Um, it's focusing on the provision uh, that he's made for us and, the, and restoring our relationship with him. It's interesting because uh, the food that's there can't go more than three days. If there's food left over after three days, you have to um, get rid of it because the sacrifice um, is no good after three days, which brings a whole new meaning to the fact that Jesus stayed in the grave for only three days because this was the sacrifice, one of the sacrifices that his death represented. But this sacrifice, um, again, was voluntary, and it could be done as often as you wanted relationship, continually renewing your relationship with God. So here, this sacrifice represents our communion with God. We must humble ourselves before God by taking up the cross daily. This maintains our communion relationship with God. This is how we maintain the relationship with our first love. The next offering is the grain offering. This too is a voluntary offering. And this one required finely ground wheat. And so the, the process of, of grinding and breaking the wheat down, um, this was also a, a sacrifice to be burned. Uh, it was tested with fire and it was made with oil, representing the Holy Spirit. So this, was, uh, this is a refining sacrifice. Um, for me, this makes me think of, of the challenges um, that God gives me, offering to be challenged, um, to use my family as an example to encourage others, to strip away all that is not of God in my life. Um, unfortunately, this is done by trials and tribulations, which is why James says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials and tribulations because it is God refining us. Um, but this is voluntary. We need to go to him and, and offer this sacrifice voluntarily. The third offering is the burnt offering, another voluntary offering. And it represents total dedication. Uh, for Jesus as the high priest, this was him laying down his life for us. It was the sacrifice of atonement. Uh, in 1 John 3.16, um, it says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. When we offer this sacrifice, we're not in any way saying that we're making atonement for others. Jesus is the only one who can make that sacrifice. And he made it once and for all. But when we lay our lives down, we're imitating Jesus and reminding others of what he did on our behalf. It was his love for us that drove him to the cross. And as his disciples, we too must be driven to the cross by love for one another and for the lost. Sacrificing ourselves once to meet the needs of others, the call of the priest. There were two other offerings that were mandatory. This was the sin offering for general sin and the trespass offering. The, <clears throat> the sin offering is because we live in the flesh and we sin. And when we're aware of a sin that we did unintentionally, we're to go to God and ask for the covering of his blood. And then the trespass offering is when we intentionally sin, when we know something is wrong, and yet we do it anyways. Um, and this is what, uh, what 
John is referring to in 1 John 1, 9, when we confess our sins one to another, the role of accountability where we confess our sins to each other um, is another way to, um, to give this sacrifice. So just as Jesus sacrificed himself to restore the relationship with God that sin destroyed, these sacrifices restore and maintain our relationship with God and with one another. Um, we just came out of the Christmas season, and, and one of the things that's so powerful about Christmas <clears throat> is that it's the revelation of God as a man, that God reveals himself in Christ, and we must respond to that revelation. God's word, his whole, his whole word is the record of mankind responding to the revelation of himself. All these stories of God coming into people's lives and, and revealing himself in ways and then how they respond to that. Um, in the Old Testament, evangelism wasn't a separate thing that people did. God intended the world to see his people and how they were blessed and make a decision based on that testimony. A perfect example of God using the nation of Israel is in the book of Joshua. <clears throat> As they're getting ready to go into uh, to Jericho to fight their first battle, um, Joshua sends in two spies. And so um, <clears throat> in chapter 2 it says, now before they lay down, the spies, uh, she, Rahab, came to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came to Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. <clears throat> when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. So here the people of Jericho knew who God was from the work that he did with his people. They were the spectacle that showed God's power. We also <clears throat> have the example of Ruth in the Old Testament. Uh, but this time it was the personal testimony of a family that brought Ruth to faith in God. So what is evangelism? It would seem that it is simply people sharing what God is doing in their life. A New Testament example is found in John chapter 4, uh, the woman at the well. So in this story, uh, Jesus stops at a well. Um, his disciples go into town to buy food for the day. And there's a woman that comes in the middle of the day to draw water, and so Jesus starts asking her questions. Um, and the discussion uh, continues. Uh, if there's ever an example of sarcasm in the scripture, um, this woman is oozing sarcasm. Um, but their conversation, uh, as Jesus continues to question her, goes in a spiritual direction. And eventually he reveals that he's the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for. So when Jesus reveals himself as God in the flesh, she believes. What does she do? She runs off to tell the people of Jesus. She now has a new relationship with the people in the town. Now remember, the reason she's coming to the well in the middle of the day is because that's when the women are not there. She was coming to be by herself. 
she didn't have relationship with the people in town. <clears throat> her old relationship was one of avoiding the people. And that relationship is over and a new relationship is here. Now she is going to the people. So she runs into town and she draws the people out and they listen to Jesus. And in, in John four forty two we read, And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So initially it was her response to the revelation of Jesus. She runs into town and she tells the people. But then Jesus stays for a few days and now they say, it's not because of what you said, but now we have heard and we believe. Her sharing her encounter with Jesus was evangelism. But five years from this point, if the woman is still only holding on to the relationship of this experience at the well, then it becomes a tradition she's repeating and not a relationship with Jesus. Remember that our tendency is to hold on to the physical aspect of these things and they easily become traditions. There's nothing wrong with tradition as long as the relationship is vibrant. Like a husband and wife celebrating an anniversary, this is a tradition that causes us to remember an event in our life and relationship. These traditions are great when the relationship is vibrant. But if the relationship is merely holding on to the tradition, then it doesn't accomplish much. People are not drawn to a relationship that is not vibrant, but a relationship that is on fire attracts others. This is how our relationship with Jesus is supposed to be. So evangelism is just sharing what Jesus has done in our life. The primary evidence of the work of the Spirit in our lives is maturity. The Holy Spirit brings maturity. The woman at the well went from a life of selfishness or immaturity to a life of selflessness or maturity. She was hiding from others and seeking after her own needs. But when she met Jesus, she became interested in the needs of others. Jesus is the most mature person that has ever existed. And he makes us more mature when we have a relationship with him. So what do we mean by maturity? Um, I found this definition um, years ago, and I love it. I have it on the wall in my classroom, and I point to it all the time. <clears throat> maturity is responding appropriately to the situation taking responsibility for your actions and their results, making wise choices, respecting others, meeting the needs of others. Immaturity, the willingness to blame someone else rather than to accept accountability and responsibility for our actions, words, and attitudes. The role of the priest is to sacrifice yourself for others as a demonstration of this kind of maturity in the Old Testament, the Levites were not given an inheritance in the promised land. So when they were, when they were dividing up the land, um, God says to the priests, um, you don't get an inheritance. They were to sacrifice their inheritance to meet the needs of others. In Numbers 18, verse 20, it says, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them, I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. So in the same way as priests, we are expected to give up the inheritance of this life 
But what we get in return is so much greater because Jesus is our inheritance. 1 John 3.16 again says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In Luke uh, chapters 9 and 10, we see Jesus collecting disciples. Some were coming to him and asking to follow. And Jesus responds by saying, in order to become a disciple, they would have to give up everything. The sacrifice of their earthly inheritance. Then he appoints 70 disciples and he sends them out with power of the spirit. Which is crazy to think about because he takes these men who don't know anything yet. Haven't been schooled, they haven't learned, and he just sends them out with the power of the Spirit. He sends out untrained but faithful followers with the Spirit and nothing else. And what's the result? Evangelism. Uh, In Luke 10, we read, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So they come back amazed and their focus is on the works. But Jesus separates the works of the relationship from the relationship. He says, be glad you have a relationship with God because that's more significant than the works that are merely the result of the relationship. So our tendency, again, their tendency was focusing on the things that they did. Here's the miracles. Here's the healings. Here's the things that we did. And Jesus says, no, no. That's just the result of the relationship with me. Uh, In Acts, we'll look at a couple more examples. Um, In Acts chapter 6, there's a, a problem in the church. Uh, There are widows that are being neglected. And so the solution was find godly men to serve in this capacity. Acts 6.3 says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. So let's look at these men as examples of evangelism. First of all, Stephen. Later on in Acts 6, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So Stephen understands that his calling as a priest is to sacrifice for others and to, know that the, and to know the word of God and how to apply it. Remember, the function of the priest was people would come and the law would be applied. God's word would be applied to the situation. And so Stephen is doing this, functioning as a priest. Here Stephen is doing just that. And because of his relationship with Jesus, because his relationship with Jesus is vibrant, the spirit is speaking through him. Um, later Peter writes... Uh, in First Peter chapter 4, um, this, it says, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here we see Stephen doing just this. The work that he's doing is the spirit of God. The words that he's speaking are the utterances of God. And the result is Jesus is being glorified. Peter explains how the relationship we have with Jesus becomes the work of evangelism in our lives. Stephen was not out doing things to evangelize others. He was just showing the relationship he had with Jesus. And the result was powerful works. What follows is Stephen sharing Jesus in a message to the leaders of Israel that reveals their refusal to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. He was just sharing the work that Jesus had done in his life and the revelation of Jesus as Messiah. So when you look at that passage, that speech he gives, he just goes through the history of Israel and he's explaining how God would send a prophet and the leaders of Israel would reject him, would kill him, would stone him. And so Stephen gets to the, he gets to Jesus and he says, Jesus is God and you're doing the same thing to him. The response to Stephen's message was that they stoned him. But even in that, the spirit was revealing Jesus to those watching. It says in the book of Acts that the priests were believing in Jesus. And I'm sure as a result of this message, even more of the priests believed. This also had an impact on Saul. Stephen's response to the call of God resulted in his death, thus living out the call to lay down his life as Jesus did unto death. We're also given the example of Philip. It says in Acts chapter 8, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them and shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. So here we see Philip, who had a vibrant relationship with Jesus that was overflowing into power around him. Philip was involved in the ministry that the Spirit was doing, but he was open to the direction of the Spirit. So in this situation, they're in Samaria. They're going around. They're preaching. Many people are being saved. The Spirit is working. And in the midst of that, God says, Philip, I need you to, to leave. Go down to Gaza. And I think lots of people in that situation would be like, but God, look, the Spirit's moving here. I want to be where you're working. I want to do this. But God had another plan. And Philip, in his obedience, said, okay. And he went down to Gaza where he met the Ethiopian who was traveling. So he explains to the Ethiopian who Jesus is. The Ethiopian gets saved. He gets baptized. Again, um, the way God works, I, it doesn't make sense. You would think that he would want to stay and teach the Ethiopians that he would know. But in the midst of that, God takes him and Philip just vanishes. And he finds himself at Azotus. And as he passes through this little town, he kept on preaching the gospel to all the cities until he reached Caesarea. So he's just walking along and he's just talking about Jesus and what he's done. Here, Philip has been involved in multiple ministries. The Spirit has called him to. And just when it starts to grow, he's called somewhere else. I like that his relationship with Jesus is so real and vibrant that he clearly hears the call of the Spirit and he responds. His evangelism is not a series of tasks that he's accomplishing, 
Rather, he's just following the Spirit and sharing with the people what the Spirit's doing. Just like the woman at the well, who was just sharing what Jesus had done in her life, this is our call as well as believers and as priests. To share what Jesus is doing in our lives with others. Many believers, when they're involved in a ministry that's bearing fruit, they stay with it, even if God is calling them to another purpose. This can lead to people leading a ministry for years that God was involved in at the start, but has moved on. And because their relationship is based on tradition or the past, it's no longer something the Spirit is in. And that's one of the things I appreciate <clears throat> about Brandon and what's happening here, because obviously the Spirit's working. But God's put a call in his life to go somewhere else. And I appreciate that he's being faithful to that. We can't depend on an experience that is past because we end up doing a work without a relationship. <clears throat> when hearing the word evangelism, many people picture someone standing on a street corner passing out tracts or going door to door asking people if they're interested in hearing the gospel. While these are forms of evangelism, the Bible demonstrates many more aspects of evangelism that the church uses. <clears throat> one is just being attentive to your surroundings. I've heard lots of stories of people who say that they were questioning God's existence and they were praying for someone just to, to come to them and help them with the task or, or to, you know, to say hello and smile. And so being sensitive to the work of the Spirit so that when someone is questioning God and, and, and seeking an answer that we are usable and sensitive to the prompting of the Spirit. could be somebody who just needs a hand dumping out a trash can at the dump or um, getting a letter of encouragement or a phone call. Uh, we, don't know, we don't know what they've been praying. Something like, God, if you're real, then, then show me. And God wants to use us for that purpose. <clears throat> Another form of evangelism is just having a personal testimony. I mean, that's, that's what we've been reading is just testimonies of people. Your story is a letter that God writes. In 2 Corinthians 3, 3, or 3, 1 through 3, it says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some, a letter of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We are the letter that, God's, that people are seeing. We are, we are God's word to the people. This is what Tim covered in his last message. Um, questioning people of their personal belief. Uh, ask others what they believe and how they came to that conclusion. When they have to defend their own belief, it reveals holes in their understanding and provides opportunities to share your convictions. Jesus asked a lot of questions. We saw it with the woman at the well. He was just asking her about where she worshipped and what she did. And, 
And it led to her questioning him, are you the Messiah? See, God is a God of relationship. And that is our primary function is to have relationship. In every circumstance, in business, management, in education, all of the trainings, the key element is relationship, relationship, relationship. So what does evangelism look like? It looks like us sharing the most recent thing that God is doing in our lives. If God is not working in your life recently, then you need to return to your first love and make that relationship vibrant again. Or ask God to use you in a meaningful way at the beginning of each day and see how God answers that prayer. If we wake up in the morning and say, God, I want to be used by you. Show me where you're working and let me do that. He's going to answer that prayer. As priests, we're to be going to God regularly to offer the peace offering, the sacrifice of peace to restore our relationship and the grain offering, the offering of being tested so that he can refine us. Why should we be making these sacrifices? So that we have a current testimony to share with others. So that God is constantly using us as a spectacle for others that he may receive the glory. I'm going to finish with these last couple passages in Isaiah 48. It says, For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath, and for my praise I restrain it for you. In order not to cut you off, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory given to another? And in Hebrews 10, we find, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict and sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle, through reproaches and tribulations, and partly because, part, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Sacrificing our present inheritance of this world for what God has in store for us. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, God, how amazing you are. God, I thank you that that you came down to us because there was no way we could make it up to you. That you save us through the work of your son and you bring us into this relationship with you. And God, you want to use us to show the world your glory so that when they see our struggles, our joys, the work that can only be explained by what you're doing, 
That is our testimony. God, the world sees. I pray that we would become more of a reflection of you. God, that your love would be seen in us, how we treat one another, how we sacrifice ourselves for the needs of this world. God, I thank you and praise you for who you are. And in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.